0: From Interfaith Alliance, this is State of Belief Radio. I'm your host, Reverend Welton Gaddy, broadcasting this week from Monroe, Louisiana. This program is made possible in great part by the generous support of you, our listeners. Now, I know I say that every time we come on the air, but it's not a perfunctory statement. We're very grateful for your support. We need your support. Today, as the world around us changes in unsettling and unexpected ways, it's more important than ever to provide this platform for thoughtful, respectful dialogue and voices that all too often go unheard. For more information on how you can keep this show on the air, please visit stateofbelief.com. That's stateofbelief.com. On our interfaith calendar, June 25th, to bring the Muslim observance of Eid al-Fatir, marking the end of the holy month of Ramadan. Now, here's what's coming up this week on State of Belief Radio.
1: No shall
2: Be careful of mankind, Diana.
0: They do not deserve you. Recent weeks have brought a resurgence of the superhero movie. Wonder Woman set a new opening weekend record for a film with female director Patty Jenkins. Israeli-born actor Gal Gadot plays the role Linda Carter made ubiquitous in the 70s. Now maybe it's how uncertain everything in the world seems to be right now. But this year has already seen several major superhero releases and everything from Spider-Man to the Justice League are still ahead. All of this made me think back 10 years to a memorable interview I had with Rabbi Simcoe Weinstein. Dubbed the comic book rabbi, he had just published a book titled Up, Up, and Oy Vey. And it seems timely to revisit that conversation on this week's show. You're one of the sorriest church members I have. You're not worth 15 cents, and he don't even know where he belongs, and you don't even know where you belong. Reports earlier this month revealed an unexpected drop in the membership of the politically powerful Southern Baptist Convention. Contrary to conventional wisdom, The dogmatic and exclusionary denomination has lost some one million members in the past decade. On this week's show, we'll look at this phenomenon with progressive theologian Dr. Diana Butler-Bass.
2: But first... Donald Trump, a pro-Christian American resurgence, and an upcoming amends to the papacy or Vatican are all fulfillment of end times Bible prophecy.
0: Here at the intersection of religion, government, and politics, we've spent a good bit of time pondering the unlikely alliance of Donald Trump and conservative Christians. Uh, More than one knowledgeable guest has posited that evangelicals had reached a craving for political power that overcame any religious convictions. While that may be true for many, it still felt like a partial explanation for us. Uh, An additional piece of the puzzle fell into place, however, with a recent Huffington Post article headlined, How Apocalypticism Strengthens the Evangelical Affinity for Trumpism. No, that word's not easy to say but it offers a theological underpinning for what we've seen taking place. Dr. Greg Carey is professor of New Testament at Lancaster Seminary in Pennsylvania, Uh, the author of several books on apocalyptic Christianity. He recently wrote a Huffington Post article headlined, How Apocalypticism Strengthens the Evangelical Affinity for Trumpism. It offers a partial answer to some of the nagging questions we've been asking on this show, and so I am really happy to welcome Dr. Carey to State of Belief Radio. Greg, thanks for being with us. Hello, Welton. It's an honor to be on your show. So what is apocalypticism other than a word that's hard to say? (laughs) Right.
3: Well, I think a lot of people in our culture use the word apocalyptic to mean anything dramatic that happens to do with the end of the world. Mm -hmm. But what I mean specifically in my piece is that group of Christians who believe the Bible is presenting a map of the end times, Mm -hmm. and who see current events as signs of the fulfillment of biblical prophecies. So,
0: how do you see that fitting in with evangelical support for Donald
3: Trump? There were a couple of things that struck me. I was driving home from a vacation and I heard Donald Trump's announcement that the United States was withdrawing from the climate accords. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it was a fairly long speech, but at a certain point toward the end of the speech, he began talking about American sovereignty. Mm-hmm. And it struck me that in a lot of the end-time Bible teaching that you hear in some churches, um, there's an emphasis on, in the last days, there will be this satanic alliance that will try to establish either a one-world government or a one-world religion, and that the argument of American sovereignty, or America first, pulling out from trade agreements, pulling out from the climate accord, criticizing NATO, it struck me that There's a certain group of Christians, maybe millions of people, for whom that would resonate very positively because they're inherently suspicious of any kind of international or interreligious cooperation. If you're inclined to think of the world as a place that's largely hostile, which Mm -hmm. goes with being apocalyptically minded, and in my piece I mentioned if you think of the world in dualistic terms, that there are the forces mm-hmm. of good over against the forces of evil, which is language that the Trump campaign has used and his presidency has used to this day, then you realize that some of his rhetoric will hit friendly parts of the ear mm-hmm. for lots of Christian voters.
0: That's very interesting. Greg, do you think he deliberately speaks in apocalyptic terminology uh, that connects him with this community, or is it just a matter of coincidence?
3: That's a really tough question. What, what I can say is that as I looked into this, I realized that Steve Bannon, who clearly is one of his intellectual influences and is a key advisor in the administration, mm-hmm. Steve Bannon has talked in a very intentionally apocalyptic terms mm-hmm. for years, and, you know, describes the world as being in, in an ongoing global war, and a war in which Western nations need to protect what he calls their Judeo-Christian heritage. Mm-hmm. Uh, that kind of language is, would be very familiar mm-hmm. to Christian millenarians or Bible prophecy believers. And Bannon, I think, influences the speeches that Trump makes. When he makes, you know, carefully scripted speeches, that influence is, is there. But whether there's, you know, an intentional design to hit those notes, I think that's more than I would know how to evaluate. I understand.
0: Well, I mentioned Pat Robertson because you and I both know that there have been a whole lot of religious leaders who have talked in apocalyptic terms, sometimes in relation to belief and then sometimes in relation uh, to loyalties in government. So we know that's been done in the religious community. Are there other political leaders that you've seen successfully tap into this language as a way of thinking?
3: Well, using apocalyptic language is something that we all do, or many of us are inclined to do, when we want to say something that's really important. Mm -hmm. So, for example, I'm very concerned about climate change, Mm -hmm. and I'm concerned with the potential that... Climate change could create, down the road in several decades, enormous chaos—the kind that you would think about when you think about a Mad Max movie. Mm-hmm. When I use that language, I'm using apocalyptic language, right? And so, when we when we all talk about some great threat, that's language that we can go to. I think that what's really unique is if you looked at the uh, Republican primaries. Early on, the three candidates who separated themselves from the rest were Trump, Ted Cruz, and Carson. Mm -hmm. And they all used that kind of language. The other candidates weren't as likely to do it.
0: I think in that situation, the apocalyptic language is embraced as a technique, as one of the uh, ways to get people's attention in a campaign. Do you agree with that, and are they doing good with the apocalyptic language?
3: Well, what I can say is apocalyptic language is extremely flexible, and it tends to be used when people want to say there's something fundamentally wrong with the world. Mm -hmm. Um, That goes all the way back to the book of Daniel and in the New Testament, the book of Revelation. You use that language when, when you're saying this is a crisis, it's a huge crisis, it might be the defining crisis of history. Yeah. I think that apocalyptic language can, can work in different groups and in different ways, but also you know we have to be aware that religious leaders and political leaders who pay attention to them are very wise in when and how they use that language. Right. And so I've seen it in religious circles all the time. Where apocalyptic language, you know, the language of either the end time or a final judgment or heaven and hell, all of that's apocalyptic language, is used to um, either incite enthusiasm or fear, right, and and motivate people.
0: Am I right that apocalyptic language is uh, predominantly the product of a crisis time? A time when people are worried about uh, the future?
3: That's a question that scholars still actively debate, because if you think about it, apocalyptic language, once it's out there, you can pick it up and use it. Mm -hmm. You can pick it up and use it to create your own crisis. So, you know, Martin Luther used apocalyptic language in in his fights against Rome, Mm -hmm. and then when German peasants were using apocalyptic language, in their own fight against the aristocracy, he denounced using apocalyptic language. <laughs>
0: so, so it might matter what He's fight. a good theologian. <laughs> How worried should we be that this is the kind of thinking that's influencing major government decisions?
3: I think we should be extremely worried at several levels. It's not so much a worry about Trump specifically, as it is that there are tens of millions of Christians who participate either more or less intensely in this worldview. So, just very quickly, some of the things that I'd be worried about. From that apocalyptic Bible prophecy point of view, they think the world is going to end in a great world war. And so they are not motivated by efforts to pursue peace. Mm -hmm. That's one thing to worry about. Their view of history tends to revolve around the nation of Israel. They'll tend to defend Israel no matter what Israel does. Mm -hmm. And they're extremely negative toward Muslims, which has been the case with the Trump administration. And so um, we need to be concerned about their, their influence on policy in the Middle East. They don't care about resolving issues like climate change either. So war and climate change are two issues where their outlook will lead them to inaction. Mm-hmm. And then the one other thing I would say is, from that point of view, anyone who disagrees with them can easily be identified as the enemy or as demonic. Right. So, for example, um, recently when the new congressional representative from Montana punched the reporter at his election celebration speech, he mentioned that story, and I heard a woman in the crowd cry out, You're forgiven! But when somebody on the other side commits an offense, right, uh, that forgiveness isn't as forthcoming. So I think war, climate change, and that tendency to divide people into good and evil and demonize those you disagree with are things we should all be concerned about.
0: It's inspirational and uh, energy-giving if you think you're combating the Antichrist. And so if you name that evil, you have almost... An end justifies the
3: means to responding that, to that. That's right, you, and you have no reason to compromise. Yeah, right. No reason to trust that the other person is is representing their good faith point of view.
0: Is there a way for well-meaning Americans to challenge this vision of the future?
3: You know, lots of biblical scholars have been working on this, not just in scholarship, but also trying to write in public venues and teach in churches. Mm-hmm. And I would still say that our effect has been fairly small. Mm-hmm. You know, this this movement of um, Bible prophecy, end-time speculation, it's not widely shared, it's not the majority of the population, but again, we are talking tens of millions of people. Yeah. And I don't think we found a strategy to help people within that own circle take another look. Mm -hmm. You know, that sort of change happens, I think, when you have relationships with people in diverse communities who see things in different ways. Mm -hmm. But anything you or I would try to say to them as outsiders, I don't don't have much optimism about the effect we'd be able to have. Yeah. You wrote a really
0: wonderful article that... Is insightful and if people ponder what you say in that they are going to have a whole new vision of, of what's happening what worries you the most about the direction things are headed for in our nation
3: I'm afraid of authoritarianism mm-hmm. I'm afraid of the erosion of democracy when I hear Donald Trump attacking the press as enemies of the state alienating our allies and demonizing his political opponents. And that sort of behavior seems to be tolerated by lots and lots of people. Mm-hmm. I worry that we'll slide into, into a society where truth and democracy aren't really valued, and what's valued is just loyalty. That's what scares me more than anything else right now.
0: Dr. Greg Carey is professor of New Testament at Lancaster Seminary. He's the author of six books, including the most recent apocalyptic literature in the New Testament. We'll link to his insightful Huffington Post article, How Apocalypticism Strengthens the Evangelical Affinity for Trumpism, from stateofbelief.com. Greg, thanks for being with us today on State of Belief Radio.
3: Thank you. It's been a genuine pleasure.
0: It was way back in 2012 that we hosted a civil on-air debate between progressive theologian and author Dr. Diana Butler-Bass, and conservative New York Times columnist Ross Douthat. The meeting was inspired by a public correspondence between the two focused on the question, is the decline of American religion a result of denominations being too soft or too hard? Conventional wisdom has held that It is the unyielding and unpromising dogma of conservative denominations that people hunger for, a point Douthat made with great confidence. Now, however, a snapshot emerges suggesting the truth is far different from that belief. And back with us to discuss these developments is Dr. Diana Butler-Bass. Diana, it's been too long. Welcome back to State of Belief Radio.
2: Oh, it's great to hear your voice. I always love being with you, Wilton.
0: So, how significant do you think these new findings are in the ongoing debate about where organized religion needs to go?
2: Well, I think that it's very significant. Um, The Southern Baptist statistics just came out this week, and they showed a decade long decline. Where the Southern Baptist Convention has lost more than a million people, and if you stretched it back for another five or six years even before that, it would be well over um, a million so what this does is it shows it shows the lie of a false you know this false narrative that we 've mm-hmm. been believing for a long time, and that was that only conservative churches could grow and what I argued with with Ross Dowett back five years ago was saying that, well, how do you account for the fact that membership is weakening in the Southern Baptist Convention and in the Roman Catholic Church, which is not a liberal church in so many ways, um, and in places like the Missouri Synod Lutherans, uh, which is a very quickly declining um, Lutheran denomination, which is very conservative. And nobody's really ever had an answer for that, except everyone would always say, well, it's just a blip. You know, it's Mm -hmm. just some weird membership Problem and everything will be back to normal pretty soon. These are very robust denominations, and they're all going to grow. Um, But I was never convinced uh, that that was the case. And what I was arguing then, and continue to argue now, that cultural circumstances surrounding religious life and religious uh, choice are far more important than the specific theology of any one denomination so what I have said, and I believe even more deeply, because I think the data is now much more strongly pointing in that direction, is that the the issue is not whether you're a liberal or conservative denomination. That's irrelevant. The issue is, are you a congregation that provides a way of meaningful life uh, for people to be able to, ca- to navigate, uh, you know, chaotic times yeah. and to be able to connect with God, to experience uh, a, a deep sense of the of the Spirit, to be able to love and be compassionate. And that's what makes uh, religious communities vibrant, uh, not whether they're liberal or conservative.
0: You've spoken, Diana, right here on this show and elsewhere about the struggles and even the losses of organized uh, progressive religion might be necessary. And even positive developments in a time of change and evolution. So how does that thinking apply to conservative organized religion?
2: Well, what I, I think is happening is that the conservative uh, Christian denominations are now going through what many liberal churches went through about 30 or 40 years ago, and that is uh, more liberal churches like the mainline Presbyterians and the Episcopalians, the mainstream Lutherans, the Methodists, the Congregationalists, they had all become incredibly sort of cozy um, with power and the status quo. Mm -hmm. So in the 1950s, when you thought of uh, political life and you thought of religious life, those two things were always deeply connected. And you would think of something like Dwight Eisenhower, um, you know, uh, praying in in public, or the putting in God we trust on our our money, Mm -hmm. or a chaplain getting up in front of the Senate and praying a Protestant prayer. And so there was a sort of coherence between the politics of mid-20th century and mostly liberal Protestantism. Mm -hmm. Um, That coherence, that, that willingness of liberal Protestants to be so close to the political order, so close to the status quo, undermined their ability to have any kind of um, prophetic vision, and really undermined their ability to be anything other than just sort of the the church of getting along. Mm-hmm. Um, for mainline Protestants, that fell apart in the 1960s because of I think mostly education status, is that mainline Protestants tended to be wealthier. That meant that they had higher education status, and that meant that the social questions of the day, particularly around Vietnam, the civil rights movement, women's rights, um, those questions all began to stir um, in the culture. And for, for liberal Protestants, the issue was, well, do we support the status quo? Or do we throw our lot with these newer sorts of voices Mm -hmm. about um, justice and uh, human rights? Mm -hmm. And that sort of problem, which way do we go? Do we support the the government because Christians are always supposed to stand with Caesar? Mm -hmm. Or do we begin to live differently because the wind of the Spirit is pushing us to live differently, and there's a different vision of justice that we haven't seen before. That problem ripped uh, mainline Protestantism into, and they could not figure out which, how to handle it. Um, their children went one way, and the parents went another way, and their churches literally collapsed. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was easy to say, oh, well, see, the problem is liberal politics. If you never address liberal politics, your churches would be just fine. But in that vacuum, conservative churches became the churches of the status quo. And so once mainline Protestant was, Protestantism was out of the way, we especially, especially, I think we basically developed something that I would call mainline evangelicalism, and that is denominations like the Southern Baptist Convention and other sorts of evangelical churches cozied up to the state, and all of a sudden it was their pastors who were giving the prayers, and the presidents came to their conventions. And they were the sort of coherent religious political alliance. Mm-hmm. And the same thing has happened to them that happened to the liberal Protestants around 1960 and that is new voices of justice have risen up uh, in gay and lesbian communities around issues of, of racial justice, pushing the civil rights movement uh, p- further, and a pushback on uh, the new Jim Crow. Uh, certainly the women's rights movement has expanded into communities that include persons of co- women of color. And so you have these all these new voices of justice that have all risen up, and evangelicals have been completely an un completely unable to address them in any meaningful way and so they have continued their the the leaders of evangelical churches have continued their alliance with the powers that be and the children of evangelicals are saying hey look we we don't buy it Mm -hmm. and that's exactly what's happening right now in the southern baptist convention is that the youngest generations are going away they're saying we, don't, we, we, we won't be the church of the status quo. We don't, we don't buy your theological vision. We are very angry about this. We don't want you to be the church of Caesar. And meanwhile, the other people who are still in charge are saying, hey, but look, that's where the money comes from. And so, exactly what has happened, what happened to mainline Protestants 40, 50 years ago, is happening to evangelicals now. Hmm.
0: My guest is Diana Butler Bass. We're discussing how conservative and progressive religious denominations are responding to changes in membership numbers as well as in the outside world. On both the liberal side and the conservative side, did churches know what was happening? Were they in touch with what was happening? Or are they seeing it uh, in retrospect and thinking, well, I wish we'd seen this earlier?
2: Well, you know, I think that uh, mainline Protestants couldn't see it, mm-hmm. because it happened to them first. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so, so there was yeah. no historical precedent to point to, and it just was like, ow, this really hurts, this is confusing, this is the way we've always done things, why is it not working now? Right. And so, so I think that for them, they were sort of really lost in the woods with this one, um, but the but evangelical Protestants having the historical precedent should have seen mm-hmm. what was coming, yeah. and they have ignored it.
0: Yeah, are, are there lessons that go beyond dogma that you think all organized religion can learn from what you just described?
2: Um. Well. You know, I think some people would hear my my analysis and say, "Well, that just means the church should stay away from politics." Um, what I what I think is the deeper lesson, and, and I don't I don't believe that the church can stay away from politics. I yeah. believe that the gospel, Um, and I think most religions have an inherent kind of political visions. Right. Um, and and those those always need to be part of a vibrant faith. Of any sort. Uh, but what we do need to stay away from is the identification of particular partisan agendas with um, religion. Mm-hmm. And so that's a little difficult. Uh, people have a tough time, especially in the United States, separating uh, politics, the life of the polis, the good of the city, uh, from partisanship. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, what ha- what happened, of course, with the with the the left, mm-hmm. the mainline Protestants, initially, people forget this. Initially, things like the Episcopal Church were called the Republican Party at prayer. Yeah. yeah. And um, they, th- what what happened with them is that that's not the case any longer. Mm-hmm. Instead, you get in most mainline churches a fairly robust split. Um, between people in party registration there are still plenty of people mostly the older generations who are republicans in mainline denominations but there are lots of people who are independents and there are lots of people who are democrats and Mm so mainline denominations tend to have a very very broad range of political identification um, whereas um, evangelical denominations are now the republican party at prayer yeah and so again, it's almost like the Southern Baptist Convention just said, "Hey, look, we're going to be episcopalians." <laughs> <You know? laughs> they would hate to hear me say that. Yes,
0: they would. <laughs>
1: <laughs>
2: but we're going to be the episcopalians of the 1950s. And, you know, it didn't it didn't work for episcopalians in the 1950s. And the lesson that the Episcopal Church learned, I think, was that um That kind of rigid partisanship when it closes out voices of prophetic um, power and when it closes out possibilities of the renewal of the church, um, that's very dangerous. And that the church has to be a far more um, responsive um, entity to the way in which the wind of God is blowing. And uh, you know, people say, "Well, that's just the wind of culture." Well, you know, sometimes it's actually the wind of God. We just have Pentecost, you know, <laughs> in yeah. uh, yeah. you know, the Christian calendar, and that's yeah. all about the wind of God showing up in unexpected places. Yeah. And that's a part of the story of a Christian Christian faith is that the wind shows up um, and changes people when you least expect it. And so, uh, you know, denominational structures don't like the wind. You know, they like. Yeah.
1: Yeah. They like order. <laughs>
2: and so so I think that one of the things that the mainline churches really learned, and it took them 40 years to really get the lesson, mm-hmm. and they still haven't entirely gotten it, is that um, you, know, you, you, you can't afford to be too cozy with Caesar.
3: Yeah.
2: And that you really do have to have a sort of a fluidity and an openness mm-hmm. uh, to however and wherever the Word is speaking in our own day. And that's very hard for institutional religions, but I think I I really do see that in many of the mainline churches, and I work with all of them all the time. Mm -hmm. Um, There is far more openness to uh, the possibilities of change and transformation than probably there have been in the last half century. Mm
0: -hmm. Well, listen, let me ask you this. Uh, Where... Do you see people of faith who are alienated from organized religion? Where are they going?
2: Well, that's still that's still up for grabs, Um, because the quadrant of people who are leaving religion behind—it appears that the largest exodus is states are happening out of conservative churches. there are still people who are leaving mainline churches, but when you dig a little deeper into the data, it's mostly because mainline churches um, are older, mm-hmm. and a lot of the leaving of mainline churches is due to death. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I know pastors in mainline churches that celebrate you know, 30 or 40 funerals a year and maybe two baptisms. Right. Right. And, and so there's a demographic sort of thing that is going on that's very powerful. So when you see people, quote-unquote, leaving the mainline, that means they're just going to go see Jesus face-to-face. <laughs> um, <laughs> but the people who are leaving and are angry and are leaving are mostly uh, what I would call the broken-hearted Catholics mm-hmm. and the really angry um, evangelicals. And um, where the disenCHANTed and angry evangelicals and the brokenhearted Catholics wind up is anybody's guess at this point in time. Right now, they're they're floating. Yeah.
0: Diana, or- I, um, I I know you well enough to know that at any one moment. Uh, you're doing about ten different things. Um, <laughs> would you um, would you tell us uh, what we should know about what you're doing, what kind of work you're doing right now?
2: What I'm doing right now, interestingly enough, is I have been paying more attention to my vocation as a writer. Mm-hmm. Which is probably one of the things that you would not have expected me to say, (laughs) but uh, you know, I've I've spent the last almost twenty years uh, working with congregations and denominations, trying to help them to understand the future. And in recent last two years, maybe kind of quietly, Mm -hmm. I've felt a deep personal call um, to pay attention to the parameters of my own spiritual life, uh, particularly as it relates to being a writer and to listen more carefully to the, what I would call maybe the the heartbeat of the world that is around me. And so I pay attention to trends. I'm, you know, I, I continue to be involved in politics. I'm always engaged in social media, uh, but I've also been writing poetry Mm. I have been reading a lot of poetry. I've been just now beginning the process of speaking at more writers' workshops and helping Mm. people to connect with the beauty and the power of words. Mm. And um, I have just finished, it comes out in the spring, um, a book called Grateful, Mm. which is on the the spiritual and personal transformation a very transformational uh, practice of gratitude, but not to just think of that as sort of an isolating, you know, oh gosh, if I'm grateful and I say thank you enough, I'm going to be healthy and wealthy, kind of like gratitude is the new prosperity gospel stuff. Um, and there's a lot of that out there. <laughs> mm. but, I, but I take the personal side of it and I expand it into a communal vision and the book ends up with a, a very surprisingly powerful and probably the most radical thing I have ever written: uh, chapter on a new vision for politics, which I refer to as the politics of gratitude.
0: Hmm. And look so, forward to that.
2: Yeah. Oh my gosh! It, it cha- every. The last couple books I have written have actually converted. I've actually converted myself, which is to something new that I needed, to a, place, a new place I needed to go. And so as a writer, I just, I'm kind of, I feel sort of like I'm almost exploding, you know, and I feel all, all kinds of energy in that part of my life. And so that's why I'm, I'm paying attention to that. And I think for me, you know, as a Christian person, one of the, the things I, I have just recited over and over again is, in the beginning was the Word. Um, and to think about how the Word is the source of all of created goodness. And, um, you know, it's a very provocative thing to be thinking about, um, especially this week when there's I'm just listening to the news and all the commentators are all agitated because, oh, there's there's so many words in the culture and so many words have, have led to this terrible shooting in Alexandria, you know. And it's like, well... You know, it's not really words. It, it, words are words are powerful, yes, um, and words create realities. But it's not all words that lead us to that kind of negative thing. Um, you know, it's what I what I sometimes think of it now as the anti word. <laughs> it's the an- We live in the age of the anti word, and that is we're surrounded constantly by lo- by words that are taking life away. So words are not the problem. As a matter of fact, we need more bu- we need more words. But what we need are words that will limit the effects of the anti-word, and so so that's what I'm doing right now. And, so I, and I say, I bet that's a little surprising to you. Well, a
0: little bit, but I know uh, that that just shows your flexibility and the way that you're sensitive to what's going on, not only in the world but in your life as well. Dr. Diana Butler Bass is an independent scholar of religion, a historian, and a prolific writer. Diana is the author of numerous books. She just told you about one that's coming out. Her latest book is titled Grounded, Finding God in the World, A Spiritual Revolution. And it's always valuable to talk with you as well as inspiring. And thanks for taking time to be with us again on State of Belief Radio.
2: Thank you for asking me, and I really hope that um congregations can grow and find new paths of vitality because we need good ones and we need fewer bad ones.
0: (laughs) Well said. Last week, we talked about how Lebanon has banned screenings of the worldwide hit movie Wonder Woman because the star is Israeli and completed compulsory military service in that country. Well, that tidbit and the record-setting success of the film itself reminded me of a conversation we aired a full decade ago with Simcha Weinstein, the comic book rabbi. With the superhero genre set to take over the world this year, I thought it was the perfect opportunity to revisit that interview. In observing the amazing popularity of comic book heroes, it would be an act of super villainy to ignore the religious overtones that exist in almost every story of a superhuman crusader. Joining me right now is Rabbi Simcha Weinstein, who's been called the comic book rabbi. He's the author of the recent book, Up, Up, and Oy Vey, How Jewish History, Culture, and Values Shaped the Comic Book Superhero. Rabbi Simcha, welcome to State of Belief.
1: My pleasure to be on the show.
0: Now, the character of Superman, or at least his alter ego, Clark Kent, is portrayed as a Protestant Christian. So what are the
1: Jewish roots of Superman? The Jewish connection to Superman is um, has been spoken about and written about many, many times. Uh, the author Michael Shabon famously wrote that uh, only a Jew would think about a name like Clark Kent. Superman's creators, Jerry Siegel and Joseph Schuster, were both second-generation Jews, and I think they shaped their... Superhero with a particularly Jewish worldview comparisons have been made with the story of Moses. Moses sent away down the Nile, grows up in a foreign culture. He becomes the uh, savior of humanity. It's a very similar story to Superman who's sent away from Krypton as a baby in a little rocket ship. He grows up in a foreign culture, a foreign land, and he becomes the savior of humanity. Superman's name on Krypton is Kal-El it's Hebrew it means the vessel of God uh, or the voice of God and it also mirrors the situation for many real life Jews back in the late 30s when Superman first came out the life for Jews in the old country in Germany was literally imploding many Jewish children were sent away on the kinder transports to grow up in safety with families in England. Um, The Jewish connection, was it conscious? Was it subconscious? Uh, Clearly, Jews are not superheroes, and superheroes are not Jews, but I think they tapped into their own tradition when creating this wonderful uh, archetypal character.
0: Rabbi Simcoe, why have so many of the superheroes sprung from the creative minds of Jewish people?
1: The answer is actually very simple, and it's very poignant. In the late 30s, it was a very anti-Semitic time in American history. Uh, Many Jews were barred from Ivy League schools, country clubs. Even entire neighborhoods had a quota on the number of Jews allowed. Uh, Jews that had serious artistic aspirations were barred from many industries. The comic book was in its infancy. It was the lowest uh, rung on the ladder of artistic integrity and it was a very easy industry for Jews to get into and to progress within. Um, it's also, I think, uh, a metaphor for the Jewish experience In America, you have many second generation Jewish immigrants who are writing and drawing uh, superhero characters that have double identities. They have their superhero identity and then they have their masked secular identity, which mirrors the real life situation for Jewish immigrants who change their names and try to fit into the all American uh, melting pot.
0: Though these characters, in, in many instances, came out of the, the creative minds of, of, of Jewish people, few of the characters are openly Jewish in the comic books. The, the Thing from the Fantastic Four has a Jewish background. Is there a reason these Jewish writers didn't create these characters to be more Jewish?
1: Yes, I, I think it actually fits in with the premise of my book, Up, Up and Ive uh, in the sense that these writers and these illustrators were trying to assimilate into American culture and American uh, ideology. So it makes sense that their their creations would also be wish fulfillment uh, of their own aspirations, which they portray. They're extremely all American. However, it's not really American. What it is, is it's the American fantasy of the Jewish immigrant. However, the fantasy was such a beautiful, all encompassing and powerful fantasy that real life Americans have adopted these symbols as their own. Uh, now, my
0: assumption is that you didn't learn all of this in rabbinical school. So, <laughs> what
1: sparked your interest in this subject? I'm the rabbi of Pratt Institute, a, a very uh, well established art school. When I first became rabbi, you know, I came onto campus, I spoke to students about the traditional Jewish laws, we spoke about the Sabbath. We spoke about kosher. We spoke about the holidays. And the student said, hey, Rabbi, you know, uh, you're a cool guy. We like you. But this stuff, it's not a part of our life. It's just not something that we want to implement. So then I realized, hey, I went to art school. I have a background in the arts. I started talking about Batman and Superman and Spider-Man. Suddenly the students were excited. And it was a, a message that I could give over in a medium which they could understand.
0: Now, one last question, and it's not profound, but uh, tell me about your Superman cufflinks that you're wearing.
1: (laughs) These cufflinks were actually a present from my neighbor, Eric. We thank you. Uh, And just to uh, end off with with a superhero theme, um, Spider-Man has always been my favorite superhero because Spider-Man has this very Jewish dichotomy. On the one hand, he can fly through Manhattan and save the whole world. On the other hand, he's a neb, he's neurotic, he can't get a job, can't get a girlfriend, he struggles. And as a Jew, I think that's something all of us can relate to. He's been called Seinfeld with webbing.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Now, I I can't leave it at that. So what
1: character in Torah is Spider-Man most like? Well, Stanley himself told me that he compares him to David. There's a famous story – of King David in his adolescence. He actually is being uh attacked. He escapes into a cave and a spider climbs over the cave, spins a web and is able to conceal David and saves his life. So this is a uh, that's coming from uh from Stanley himself. Personally I think he's more of a Woody Allen, uh Jewish, uh, neurotic, um nebbish character who has this sort of a biblical tradition and mystical spark inside of him to do good and save the world.
0: Rabbi Simcha Weinstein, it's been a delight having you on. Thanks for joining us on State of Belief. Anytime. The pleasure is all mine. From the summer of 2007, that's Rabbi Simcha Weinstein. He had just released his book on the Jewish roots of the American comic book hero titled Up, Up, and Oive. Well, that's all the time we have for this week's show. If you've made a donation to State of Belief Radio this week, I want to say a sincere thank you. If you've heard something on this week's show that you think would be helpful to someone you know, please share it with them. Direct them to stateofbelief.com, where they'll find full episodes, an in-depth archive, extended interviews, transcripts, and links mentioned in the show. The community that has grown around State of Belief Radio is active all week long online. Be sure to follow us on Facebook and Twitter and engage in the discussion. State of Belief Radio is a production of Interfaith Alliance. Become a member today at interfaithalliance.org. Our producer is Ray Kirstein. Be sure to join us next week. For more stories from the intersection of religion, government, and politics, until then, you all take care of each other. I'm Welton Gaddy, That State of Belief. It's
1: time we stop.
3: Hey, what's that sound? Everybody look what's going on.